I would like to uh, take some time here to both review where we've been, and then I'd like to share a story about delivering God's mail to the toughest people. And uh, I'm going to share this story in just a moment. But we, we've talked about worship being, a, the big idea of worship is that we offer to God our bodies as a living sacrifice. And we started with our hearts and we talked about how Jesus wants to do something in us before he can do something through us. And that our hearts, he wants our hearts to become transformed uh, into and likened to the heart of Jesus. As we offer our hearts, as we begin to pray and talk to God about men, before we talk to men about God, as we begin to notice other people, as our eyes are surrendered to God, as we begin to listen to other folks, uh, what I find is that if you were to walk alongside me, as I begin to do all that, as I begin to listen to others and notice others, um, there are just natural, you know, natural things that happen and in relational connections where I can step into very authentically and begin uh, spiritual conversations that don't seem like they're coming out of left field. You know, when that happens, people feel like, well, that's your agenda. But what I'm doing is I'm listening to people. I'm listening to what God has been up to in their life. And I'm trying to join the conversation God's already been having with them before I ever showed up. So if you believe like I do, that God has put, if you want to call hungerings in our soul for certain things, like I would say, uh, this is uncategorically true for all of us here today, that all of you have a desire to be loved and accepted. God has made us that way. So that's something that's in us. It's a drive inside of us to want to be loved and accepted. And or, or maybe uh, there's a drive inside of us to do something significant with our lives. And I think God created us to do something significant, to do something purposeful. What I'm doing is I'm listening for people to find out where what their soul is hungering for, what they're driven for, and what they're going after. And then what I'm looking for is to see what question might I ask it to connect with the thirst and hunger that they presently have, and how does Jesus speak into that? So instead of kind of having this conversation that's way out here in left field, it actually is in line with the very thing they're hungering and thirsting for after I've listened to them. And, and, and when that happens, something powerful um, takes place. I, uh, I think of uh, an experience I had on an airplane flying to uh, Edmonton, Canada, that probably maybe best represents this. I, I got on the plane, and for me, you'd have to understand that an airplane kind of is like a pseudo man cave for me, because I'm like, uh, it, it's where I'm working, I'm preparing for that next thing where I'm speaking. And so I had a row all to myself, which I was thrilled about. But right before the door closes, some lady's running down the jetway, and she just barely gets on before they close the door. And wouldn't you know, she's sitting right next to me. I had to hurry and get all my laptop and my books and everything that I already got now because I was speaking to the church at 2,500 that night and I, I needed to do some preparation for that. And she sat down and she started. 
Now the word on the street, ladies, is most of you need 25,000 words a day. This lady was a flaming extrovert. She probably needed 40,000 every day, and it was early in the morning, and she hadn't started yet, and so now I'm sitting there going, oh no, here she goes, and she just starts, ba 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 and I'm sitting there going, Lord, not right now, I just, have you ever felt like you just want to be off the clock, like I just, not right now. But I've done that before, and I've wrestled with God, and I just decided, hey, you know what, I'm just going to close my laptop. This could be a divine appointment. I don't want to miss it. And, and, and I just reminded God, God, you know what I have to do tonight. You better provide some time for me to do that. So I closed the laptop and I began to listen to her. And soon I found out she was a world traveler, much like myself. I've been to 42 different countries. She's been to 26. And the thought occurred to me as I was um, listening to her that I know what takes me to all these countries. I wonder what takes her all these places. So the secret of being interesting in a conversation is to be interested. Find out what they're passionate about. Find out what makes them tick, what drives them. And so I said, hey, I'd love to hear uh, what takes you to all these countries. And she says, I'm the lead singer in a band. And I said, seriously, that's really cool. I said, tell me about your like most exciting gig of all time. And, and it wasn't like she was sitting there going, oh, this is such a boring conversation. No, I was asking her to talk about something she cared deeply about. And she was all into it. She said, oh, that had to be when I was led on the stage playing a wireless saxophone while I was riding on the back of a camel while my band played in front of the pyramids. <laughs> I said, that rocks. That is so awesome. I said, if you've done that, I said, you probably have had some other great experiences. Tell me about your second most significant gig. And she said, well, that'd have to be when I played for president, President Bush. And I said, what was that like? And it was really fascinating. Immediately, her tone changed. She said, I will never do that again. You see, when sometimes noticing doesn't just happen with our eyes, sometimes we notice with our ears. Sometimes we need to see with our ears and we need to hear with our eyes. Think about that for a moment. I'm going to roll around in your head, but I think you'll get that. And, and what I was doing was I was seeing with my ears. I was, I'm going like, wow, there's a story behind her tone of voice. And so, you know, moving into that, I said, hey, you got me scratching my head over here. And she said, why is that? And I said, well, I'm thinking that most performers would love to do more gigs for the president because I'm sure it came with a pretty good paycheck. She said, oh yeah. And I said, so what gives? Why was it such a downer to, to and why would you never do that again? Now you'd have to understand the context. This was right before President Obama got elected for the second time. It was a month before and, it, and, and Ohio is a battleground state. I mean, it's crazy. Like about a month out, you start getting these robocalls, like 10 a day, from all these famous people that you've never heard, don't know, but you've heard of, and they're calling you saying, hey, vote this way. And, and it just, after a while, it just gets kind of nauseating. And so I was kind of understanding what she was saying. She said, you know what drives me nuts? Because I'm just so sick and tired of Democrats and Republicans demonizing one another. I will never use my abilities again to further their political wishes. 
And I said, I get that. I said, and I just kind of silent, kind of, kind of half. I said, you know, I feel the same way. And I, and you and I have a lot in common. Not only we traveled the world and done a lot of things, but I feel the same way when it comes to religion. She goes, Oh my gosh, tell me about it. I said, it sounds like you've had some pretty negative experiences with religion. She goes, yeah, I grew up in a neighborhood. Uh, it was a Jewish neighborhood, and we were, the, we were the poorest Jews in the neighborhood, and so we were the butt of all the jokes in the neighborhood. And then she looked at me with all the passion she had, and believe me, as a lead singer, she had some gusto. She looked at me, and she said, I hate religion. But most of us, you know, when we encounter somebody like this, this would seem like a closed door, like this conversation is not going anywhere. But a lot of times, understand that when people have a lot of passion, they care deeply about the topic. And there's usually some reasons why. And if we can just kind of get past the, the initial giant wall that seems like is looming there, they actually really do want to talk about it. They just don't want to talk about it in the ways they've been talked about it in the past. And so I said, uh, I get it. Sounds like uh, for you, religion has been very hurtful. I did some listening. And um, I said, but I am curious. And I said, I, I want to be respectful of you. I said, you know, and I think we can never go wrong by asking for permission. So I asked her for permission. I said, I, I've got a personal question to ask. It's just something I'm curious about. I said, um, I know you're down on religion, but I am wondering, have you ever had an, an experience that you'd call spiritual in nature? She goes, yeah, I did have one when I was 12 years old. And I said, what was that? What was going on at 12 years old? And she said, well, my mom and dad were going through a divorce and, and I was stuck in the middle. They were both pulling me from their side, trying to convince me that they, they were right and, and the other partner was wrong. And I didn't know what to do as a 12 year old. I just thought, if this is good as life is going to get, I'm going to go ahead and take my life. I'm going to commit suicide. So she made a plan to take her life. She was going to go out after her mom and dad went to work. She was going to take her mom's prescription pills and go out and overdose. And she went out to a very remote area. She described it to kind of be like out in a park area where there's no cars, no people, nobody around. And she was writing a note to tell her mom and dad why she was taking her life. And all of a sudden, some lady older lady shows up out of nowhere. She's never seen her before. She didn't know how she got there. She didn't even know how she saw her. And she seemed to know what she was doing. And she says, you don't want to do that. Your life's going to bring joy to a lot of people someday. And it just stopped her dead in her tracks. Like, how did she know that? And, and, and like, what are you talking about? My life's going to bring joy to, to... And she stops and looks at me and, and, and she goes, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, this probably sounds really stupid right now, doesn't it? And I said, no, not to me at all. He goes, really? I said, you'd have to understand, I believe there's a God. And is it possible, I just threw out the question, is it, po is it possible that maybe God in that moment was reaching out to you and that lady was an angel who cared so deeply about you that she stepped into your life and rescued you from something you were about to do? And I said, you said that you never saw her before and you didn't know where she went after she told you that. She just disappeared mysteriously. And she goes, you're right. She goes, oh my gosh, I've never thought about it that way before. And I said, have you had any other experiences that you call spiritual nature? And she starts sharing another story. 
And she gets done sharing the story. I look at her and I just get a big grin on my face. She goes, what are you? She's like, what, what are you? I said, you know, you really are a believer, aren't you? And she goes, I told you I hate religion. I said, I get it. I know you hate religion, but you just sat here for the last 15 minutes and told me two stories that to me sound like God was reaching out to you and you're acknowledging that could be true. I said, is it possible you're dissing the God of the universe because you don't want to become like those people who hurt you back in your Jewish neighborhood? And she goes, oh my gosh, you're getting me to rethink my whole life. <laughs> and I said, have you ever studied the life of Jesus? Because I think you and him have a lot in common. He had some pretty hard words for religious people. And you've had some pretty hard words for religious people today. I said, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. And we've got about an hour left on this flight. And that would be my greatest privilege to be a tour guide through the New Testament and, and, and just take you and introduce you. And she, for the next hour, we studied the life of Jesus, a friend of sinners. We hit the ground in Canada and she says, man, I wish more people could have conversations like this. And I said, so do I. Most of that happened because of just being available you know, I had to be available. I had to put down my agenda. I had to worship God in that moment. I had to say, God, I'm going to close the laptop and I'm going to be available to be used by you. Then I started listening. And as I started listening, I started wondering. And I started offering my curiosity. And, and I just was led by the Spirit in that conversation. We want to end our time today with a story that happened in a university uh, town just like yours. I think you'll find this very relatable. Uh, I'm not going to tell the story. I'm going to let the person who actually wrote it and who's in the story, I'm just going to uh, just lift the words right from her book. Um, Rosaria uh, Butterfield is the author's name, and the title of the book is called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I'm going to stop as we read through it just to take some timeouts to make sure you don't miss the really, really big points. As a leftist lesbian professor at Syracuse University, in case you're wondering, I despised Christians. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians seemed like bad thinkers to me. It seemed like they could only maintain their worldview only because they were sheltered from the world's real problems. They were also bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than to deepen it. The Bible says, always seemed like a mantra that invited everyone to put his, his or her brain on hold. Jesus is the answer, seen to me then and now like a tree without a root. Answers come after questions, not before. Answers answer questions in specific and pointed ways, not in sweeping generalizations. In addition to appearing anti-intellectual, Christians also scared me. They appeared exclusive, judgmental, afraid of diversity, and claimed that God was on the side of those who followed the rules of the Christian lifestyle. In contrast, the lesbian community was accepting and welcoming. It was like home for me because it felt safe and secure. We're going to live in the real world. We've got to talk about 
real conversations with real people who have views that are much different than ours. And, and if we're going to play more away games, we you know, need to say, how can I move towards somebody who just doesn't see eye to eye on me on a lot of things? We're going to find there's going to be someone introduced into this story, actually a Presbyterian pastor who shows up in her world at Syracuse University. And what I want you to pay attention for and look for here is what does he do to engage this professor at Syracuse who obviously has some really strong feelings about the Christian community that are not very positive. Let's check out and find out what he does. She goes on, stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. So I launched my first attack on the Holy Trinity of Jesus, Republican politics and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. The article generated so many responses that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind, inquiring letter. Notice first that she acknowledged kindness as being, she sensed that. We talked about that earlier today. Then notice what he does next. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. He led with questions, not with answers. How do you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. Look at this next sentence. I love it. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. His questions were, A, number one, reasonable, and they invited me to think in ways I had never thought before. I really believe in a post-Christian culture. We need to become experts at asking these kinds of questions like he did. Because a question is kind of like depositing a grenade in someone's mind, and we never know when the Holy Spirit's gonna pull the pin and that question is just going to be like shrapnel and start to shred the worldview that someone has and cause them to think about their worldview in a different way and to think in ways they've never thought before. And isn't that the process of repentance? Repentance is one changing their mind and changing their direction. Instead of moving away from God, they actually start turning and moving towards God. And I think the question mark becomes our great friend to help people in this process. So one of the great ways we can serve people is to ask these kinds of questions like Ken did here in this letter. She goes on to say, with his letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I love were going to hell. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife Flo and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. 
They came to my dinner parties. They saw me function in real life. Whoa, time out. Does this sound like Ken and Flo to you passed the Jesus test? Like, like instead of waiting for her to come to church, they actually went to her and met her on her turf, met her friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They made it clear they accepted me as a lesbian but did not approve of me as a lesbian. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. He prayed as if God cared, as if God listened, as if God answered his prayers. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And check the next one out. And because Ken and Flo did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. And so I opened up to them. They made themselves safe enough for me to do this. In other words, and think about this, and I know, David, you would certainly, you know, as a pastor and other pastors would feel this, you know, it's a lot of churches send their pastor a message that, hey, we're paying you here to, to be here inside these four walls. Now let me say something here today. If this man's going to lead you out of the building, you've got to give him permission to do so. You've got to give him permission to not always be here. And you've got to know that in this particular situation, Ken and his wife Flo, the people in their church, it's like, listen, we're not paying you to hang out with people like this. We're paying you here to kind of, you know, meet our needs. But here Ken and Flo, or, I mean, here Ken and his wife Flo, because they were friends of sinners and because they had the heart of Jesus, they reached out beyond the walls and they became the church to her. And they weren't ready to ask her to come to church because she wasn't ready for that. They met her where she was on the football field and journeyed with her one step at a time. In her words, listen to what happened. Ken and Flo Smith had shared the gospel with me for two years over and over again, not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way. They didn't pressure me or push me or interfere in my life. They were just there. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I love, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. Ken was there. Lo was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. God's people surrounded me, not to manipulate, not to badger, but to love and to listen, to watch and to pray. And eventually, instead of resisting, I surrendered. Jesus triumphed. Would it blow you away today to know that Rosaria is married to a pastor and they are serving the Lord together in a church in North Carolina? That, men and women, is the power of the gospel, the power to transform people and redeem their lives from whatever they're into, whatever they've done. And this was the heart of Jesus. This is what he, he came for, to seek and to save that which is lost. Ken and Flo passed the Jesus test. And Rosaria, Rosaria was, was the benefactor because they were willing to meet her right where she was.
Well, I'm a, regretfully, I'm out of time here today. Uh, I uh, really have enjoyed this uh, unique way to kick off the new year. And, and if you're resonating with some of what you've heard today and you would like some more resources, uh, the first place I'd direct your attention to would be my website. You'd find the Jesus test is there. The listening test is there. There's a whole bunch of stuff, 99 wondering questions. You'll find it there at godsgps.com. In terms of takeaways or take-homes, uh, back here on the book table, my friend Al, you'll meet him back there. Um, the listening book is there. Uh, I have a Godspace pocket card. It's exactly like a credit card, same thickness. You can put it in a pocket or a purse or a wallet, uh, your Bible. And it's got the big ideas from the book uh, on creating Godspace. You might find that helpful. Uh, the book is back there, Godspace. And then uh, for those of you like would, would like to go a little deeper, uh, maybe you're in a small group and you'd like your group to kind of, hey, I, I'd, I'd really like to spend some time on this topic. Uh, we've created a uh, plug and play uh, leaders DVD training uh, kit. And you'll see here all the stuff that's listed in there. And you would find this to be extremely helpful. There's video content that leads you through the book and helps you take the big ideas that we've been talking about today and bring those uh, to life. You will find those back there at the book table on the way out as well. I'd like to leave you with one last clip, and I think it's the best place to end our time here, at least my time here today. And that is, regardless of what you've heard here today, at some point we just um, need to get okay with leaving the results up to God. Sometimes I think we cross the line. We Part of my recovery is I realized that many times I was running through the stop signs. I was exceeding the speed limit. I was hijacking conversations and trying to steer them towards spiritual things. You know, um, each person comes to God in, a, in their own way. And I think we need to be respectful of the process. And in many ways, I think we need to learn how to become spiritual midwives. I can't imagine a midwife saying, hey, you know, I'm going on vacation next week. Uh, it's time for you to have that baby now, right now. And sometimes when it comes to evangelism, we get impatient with the process and we want to speed it up. It just really, I, I, I don't think that's really all that wise, that we just need to uh, journey with the person towards the foot of the cross and beyond. Listen to... Uh, the founder of the Mops Ministry, some of you women might be familiar with her uh, as she talks about this. She did finally come to God. I mean, at her deathbed, she reached out next to me into this space next to me as I stood by her bed. And I said, well, what do you see there? And she said, Jesus. And she reached her hands out to him. And I'm like, whoa, pretty sensational. And, and I watched her go into his arms. That was amazing and it so convinced me to never ever give up because that was a 30-year journey for me with her. And you know, on the flip side of it, my father was not interested in God either. And on his deathbed, I held his hands, fully expecting God to do the same miracle he did with my mother. And I watched him breathe in and breathe out and breathe in and breathe out and breathe in and breathe out. And he was gone. And I have no idea where he went. And I have to sit with that and go, was that my fault? Did I do something wrong? Did I need to say more prayers? Did I need to have him pray out loud? And God has finally convinced me that I can trust my Father's eternity to the one God who's all loving 
and fair. And I have to, and I think when it comes to family, we carry around this inordinate burden that it's up to us. And, and we, we may watch in one family member, someone respond and think, oh, we did it right. Yay! And then we look at someone else and maybe they don't respond in a visible, tangible way. And we think, oh, we did it wrong. And we're responsible. And, and I think God wants to free us from all of that and, and convince us once and for all that He has a personal love for each human being. And through His Holy Spirit, He has access to their inner souls in a way that we don't. And He might invite us into that process and use us, but sometimes we don't know it, and sometimes we do. Mm. That's a great place for us to end the day, and I'm living in that tension myself. I've got a son who's 18 who's a rabid follower of Jesus and is sharing his faith with his classmates, and his older brother, who's two years older, is still like, he just doesn't get it. And we, we, you know, with agony, we just watch some of the crazy decisions he's making and some of the things that he's just not ready. You know, he's heard the truth, but he's just not there yet. And we have to live with that tension of leaving the results up to God, to being faithful, not to get ahead of God, but also not lag behind maybe what the Spirit of God is doing. Maybe you find yourself in the same situation. And we just have to, to daily pray and, and ask God to give us wisdom as we move into those things. Hey, great to be with you here today, church. I'll be back at the book table. You got questions, comments, love to engage with you back there. Uh, thanks for kicking off my new year. This is a great way to start the new year. Thanks, David, for the opportunity to be here. <laughs>